0: I basically determined now that there's a chance here to probably build the world's biggest business. Uh, And even beyond that, like make the probably the biggest impact I I could at anything I spend my time on. Uh, So half of all GDP is labor, human labor. So you think like the transportation market's big, like the the market for like human labor is, is, it's the biggest economy in the world. It's, it's, it's massive. We happen to have built this universal way to interact with the world that like that works with the human body. (laughs) It's like the, it's the equivalent of like the keyboard and the mouse for the internet, which is like the universal general interface to the web or to the phys- like digital world. That same equivalent here, the physical world is a human body.
1: What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Pujie. And this is The Crazy Ones. On today's episode of The Crazy Ones, I chat with Brett Adcock. He's the founder of Vettery, Archer, and Figure. He sold Vettery, a job search platform, for $100 million in 2018. Then Archer, which is an electric aircraft startup, he took public at a $2.7 billion valuation. But the guy doesn't stop. Now Brett is creating fully functioning, general-purpose humanoid robots with his business Figure. He believes it can be the biggest company in history. We talk about Brett's journey as a founder, how he runs his businesses, and ultimately what drives him. Let's hop into it. Brett Adcock, thank you so much for joining The Crazy Ones. Thanks for having me. So you were telling me before this, this is like the first podcast you've ever done. Why, why, uh, why come on a podcast today?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it is the first one. So uh, your your partner Jesse, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, like basically a CEO uh, network with him, and basically asked me to come on. And I, I haven't done any of these for ten years, mostly because like I feel like every minute I spend on a podcast is a minute I could spend back into the business. Uh, so I feel I just feel a little guilty taking time off a bit. So. Uh, yeah, this is my uh first podcast
1: appearance. Well, life. we're uh we're super grateful for you to be on here. Jesse hopefully is gonna join at some point. He sent a picture like five minutes before our recording of a bunch of wires and his uh wireless router showing a red light. So I think he's working on his internet right now. But um, I mean you have an incredible story between building vetery, archer, now figure. And I want to start early on in your story for people to get kind of a sense of just like the values that drive you and kind of what set the foundation for you being a serial entrepreneur. So give me a little bit of background on just like your early life. Your childhood, was entrepreneurship a part of your childhood? How did you get into it?
0: Yeah. So uh, so I grew up in the Midwest on a farm in Illinois. Uh, my parents were actually third-generation agriculture farmers, like corn and soybeans. Um, yeah. So from a young age, my parents were always like, "We run our own business here. Uh, at some point, if you really want to control your destiny and make a real impact, like we think you're going to have to be an entrepreneur and go out and build things." And um, yeah, so ever since I was like a little kid, I always knew like I just loved building stuff and loved entrepreneurship in general. And uh, so yeah, I've been you know high level, been building technology now for about twenty years, building businesses. Yeah, I think like my background's basically been rooted in like just hard work, trying to ex- expand my knowledge as much as possible. And uh, at this point, kind of being driven by, two, I think, two things. Uh, first is, how do I make as much impact as possible while I'm here? Um, for, for me, it's really not about the money. It's more about like, okay, uh, waking up when I'm 80, like, am I going to make a like, large positive impact to the world? And I think, too, is I, I just want to wake up excited and inspired about what I'm working on. Like, how do we make this future, like, awesome? And um, so a lot of the work, things I work on are kind of driven by, you know, those two things. And, um, you know, so far I walk into the office every day here, just a big smile on my face, working on a really hard problem that I think could, you know, really help make a big impact.
1: So I look at, you know, the three most recent businesses that you've built and are building in Vettery and archer and in figure and i see like three wildly disparate businesses i see a hiring marketplace i see a uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing uh business and i see a uh hum- ai uh humanoid robot business and i the question i ask myself is you talk about being driven by having a large impact that when you're 80 years old you look back and you're like Damn, I did some like pretty awesome work that helped the world. How do you figure the the through line of these three businesses that plays into that motivation?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some like um, escape velocity needed for any entrepreneur to get into hardware. I, I think that's just like really tough. Like I think ever since a kid, I was like, I, I wanted to work in hardware, wanted to work in more challenging areas of AI development. And I feel like for, for the longest time i always felt like i needed like a substantial you know capital injection personally i needed like a long runway i needed credibility to raise a lot of capital to do big partnerships have like a big group of people join me um, so like when starting veterinary i i ultimately really excited about how much time we spend in the workplace like outside of spending time with loved ones you're we're at work most of our lives not everybody has the most enjoyable experience at work looking for a job is it's just like uh, it's a terrible experience. Like it's so hard for both sides. Like if you're an employer trying to hire, if you're like a job seeker, it's like applying to a black hole. It's hard to, I like, guess hard to know who's hiring. It's hard to get in there. It's, you know, it generally historically has been very like, not been a very, uh, it hasn't really been a, a meritocracy in mm-hmm. so, so many ways. So ultimately wanted to work on, Kind of that labor problem when starting, you know, when starting veterinary, I think it's like was it is and still is a really important thing to solve. Um, after selling that business, I basically, like, I immediately knew I wanted to work um, on Archer. Like, I basically was, uh, I wanted to work into some harder problem that I could spend a long time on. And I was obsessed with traffic. I was obsessed with sustainability. Um and basically, just started. and almost immediately building an aircraft, <laughs> um, and um, yeah. And then from there, uh, now in a figure, I think ultimately, like you know, it, it is a really hard problem here at Figure, but it certainly seems very tractable. And um, and it's it's rooted in a lot of like first principles engineering frameworks that, in some way, make me feel like a lot more comfortable than software. Like, totally. There's like there's physics in hardware. It's like there's rules that we can follow that are either right or wrong. And in software marketplaces, it's not, right? It's like this evolving thing where you're trying to, you know, do lead gen for for both sides of the marketplace. You're trying to get in. You're trying to create liquidity. You're ultimately trying to renew. You're trying to upsell. It's just like a, it's a really, you know, it's an evolving ecosystem that has like emergent properties inside of it. And in hardware, it's like there's physics. There's a rule book to follow. And so, in so many ways now, it feels almost like so much less stressful than my software days.
1: I want to spend a bunch of time during our conversation talking about figure because i think it's fascinating and you know if you pull it off it's a multi-trillion dollar business but i want to start back with vetery for a second because something i'm always interested about is how entrepreneurs find their ideas how they are picky about their ideas when oftentimes they have many ideas so just walk me back for a second like do you remember what it was that led to the idea for Vettery? Like, how do you come up with the idea and how do you decide that it was an interesting enough idea to pursue? And do you remember any other ideas along the way that you said no to in order to say yes to these ideas? I think, you know, so I started working
0: – I basically been building technology businesses for last – like basically since middle school and high school. Um, like, you know, working in Visual Basic to, to, to building little small startups in high school and college. And um, after basically during during college, I got obsessed with like applying for jobs, like how the whole process is completely broken, and I started basically some content sites around interviewing for jobs. There's there's still a site today that exists called StreetOfWalls.com that I I wrote content for. It's online now. I think it still gets almost a hundred thousand visitors a month organically. I'm on the site right now. Um, yeah, so it was like there's a little little outdated. Like I wrote that like 10, 15, 20 years ago, but uh, it's still there. Like I, I have like, we, we I make no money on it. Uh, but at one point, I was selling interview guides and um, I was building some apps for applying for jobs. And then basically, Battery was like a series of like three or four pivots into like the battery marketplace in 2015. Uh, prior to that, I had a couple kind of variations of the business for, for whatever reason, we're just not getting product market fit. So I kind of went down this like, um, almost like like not a conscious decision around recruiting because I was just interested in it and I was building some small things around it. And it all just like fell into this, you know, I was all of a sudden woke up one day and I was like in the talent marketplace business. And, um, you know, I listen, I have a strong passion for the space. Like I think hiring is really important. I think we spend most of our lives in the workforce, like working on jobs. And it's a really important problem to be solving. And listen, by the time I left there, we were doing... I know about 20, 30,000 interviews per month across the marketplace. And we were doing all that through learned policies. Uh, we were trying to basically make matches at scale without any human intervention. And it was kind of after that experience at Vettery where I felt like, okay, I, I got to really control the destiny around idea generation, what I spend my time on. And I would say the, the last 10 years of my life have been dominated by this fear of like my time. Um, the most precious asset I have as an entrepreneur is like I spend seven years on something and it doesn't work. Like that is just brutal. Like I only have so many years left, right? A couple decades left of real building, you know, two or three decades. Like I gotta spend that time really wisely and I just I can't fail. So like choosing that like what idea to work on and going down the right path, I think for an entrepreneur is like basically everything. It really defines your odds of success up front pretty pretty squarely. And then it becomes like an execution game of you know how far you can grow and how well you do and you know how, how to not die. All those problems an entrepreneur like basically comes comes into uh, focus with.
1: Totally. Well, so it sounds like for Vettery, what happened was you had this initial idea, and just through building out the idea, you learn things that cause you to continue pivoting until you landed on what actually became the business. And. In some ways, it feels like that's what you alluded to, which is like you didn't necessarily choose what you were working on. It's like the market kind of dictated what was worth working on. So then pull forward to Archer, was it a similar type of process or did you from day one arrive at the idea and then you just built out that idea? And and had you even arrived there? Because like there are many very large problems to solve in the world. Why was this the one that you felt was worthy of your time? Yeah. I think
0: for just context too, like on the transition from Vettery, like when we, when I launched the marketplace in like April 2015, like within a week, we knew we had a product market fit and we knew this was going to be a huge, like big business. Like it was from there and maybe like 24 months by the time we got a term sheet to sell for $110 million. It's wow. wild. And it was just, it was crazy. We went from, you know, 15 people to 300 and it was just like pure scale and growth. So it was like, you know, during that period of time, we, we, I knew, we, we had something really special. I knew I found product market fit. I knew what it looked like. I knew how to scale the business. Like, it was just a great experience overall. So, by the time we, you know, at, at one point it was like between a series Series B round of capital or like here's the term sheet for the acquisition. I decided to go with the acquisition route. Um, uh, you know, we ended up selling to the Deco Group, which is the world's largest recruiting company, and it was just a great win across the board. At, at the time that all was happening, I took a step back and I basically said. I'm going to make sure I really choose what area I go into very thoughtfully here. And I, I knew it was going to be in some advanced area of kind of like more what people call like now deep tech. Mm-hmm. So areas of, I think there's a few frameworks that I really cared about. Um, I was interested in sustainability. I was interested in solving like real hard problems like traffic. I was looking at genetics. We were looking at um, yeah, like many areas of just hardware and AI um, and, and, uh i think one thing i really wanted to do with archer is i i didn't want to have to sell anymore like uh like you know the whole process for legion renewals like all that i wanted to work on a technology that fundamentally could be solved it could have almost like infinite scale and i mean good analogies here would be like the boring company if you can build tunnels underground like there's like there, there's as much induced demand as you can basically populate through tunnels. Yeah. Like, there, there's just it's it's going to scale. Like, uh, you know, it's the same with rockets now, with with you know orbital satellites and stuff. Like, there, th- there's just an unlimited demand for the, for those type of technologies if you can solve the technologies. Now, solving them is like one thing, right? It's like how do we <laughs> how do we get there? But like to the extent they can be solved, they can unlock basically huge huge businesses. Um, so uh, yeah, I just basically got obsessed with the whole traffic problem. I got obsessed with sustainability, like basically the century all form of transportation besides rockets will, we'll move to electric. And um, what, I mean, we spend so much of our time in traffic. There's, I think it's like basically half the world now lives in cities. And I think the stats are like maybe 70% of the world in the next like 20, 30 years, will will be in a city in the U S or sorry, in, in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so like, like it's just, it's, it's, en- it's enormous. And we really haven't ever addressed the traffic problems for the last like 50 years. Like there's 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 just no solution for it. Um, I, I think the way you're going to fix this is you need to use the z-axis you you need to go either above or below ground to fix this you need to go into three the third dimension in 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 my view and you had this huge uh tailwind in you know sustainable energy technology so battery and power energy density are you know uh and um i was you know i i was a, a very long time obsessed with aviation and um I basically felt that this was the right time and the right decade to bring an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft to market. And then there was a subtle change in basically 2019 where the FAA started coming out more publicly and said, we're gonna certify this stuff in the US. And we, we wanna be the first one of the first ones to do it. Uh, so I remember watching like a C-SPAN 4 like, you know, episode um, where you had Jay Merkel on TV, basically saying, we're, we're gonna make this real. And we're gonna actually certify in, like traditional aircraft and we're going to bring it to market here in the U.S. And with electric aircraft, you can basically make them like like much safer and mm-hmm. more quiet than like traditional helicopters. Like it's a it's a far better product overall. The hurdle is just like, okay, can, can you build the tech? Can you raise the billion dollars of capital that's required to, to make it work or you go bankrupt? And then can you get through the F.A. certification process to make this really work? So I'd say the, the process around that was like the degeneration process was, I would say, very thoughtful and very rigorous. And I really wanted to make sure that whatever I chose to do with my time was something that I was dedicated for for the next couple of decades.
1: Totally. There's so much there. I want to put a pin for a second in just the idea of solving very hard problems and having like the base level of knowledge to kind of (laughs) be dangerous enough with your knowledge to build these businesses. Uh, so let's go back to that in a second. I just wanna address one thing you said before you transition from Vettery to Archer, which is selling the business, right? You basically said, after hitting product market fit, in 24 months, you decide to sell the business for 110 million uh, to deco. I think that the process of selling a business for entrepreneurs is like an incredibly difficult one, right? Like you, so much of your identity is tied up in building your business, so much of your identity is. Uh, is tied up in autonomy and freedom to build how you choose. And then also just the decision to sell, you know things inevitably or likely will change when you sell a business. And so people often ask the question of like, when is the right time? How did you know is the right time to sell Vettery, And what is your general mental model for when is the right time to sell businesses? Yeah. I mean, listen, I can tell you about the experience I had at
0: Vettery. it was either you know we need more capital to sk- keep scaling the business this was not a hey let's like let's let's like you know let's slow down revenues let's get the profitability let's just like this was a land grab basically yep. we were launching in 18 cities in the first 24 months it was a marketplace model marketplaces generally do better when there's supply demand that has a lot of liquidity or transactions across the platform so basically we were trying to increase liquidity as fast as possible think like uber type scale you yep. really want to get there fast get everybody using it and then you basically want to drop prices you want to make it, it it'll continue to basically induce demand on both sides and then um and then basically scale. So it's 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 a land grab business. It was, you know, so we knew that from the start. Uh, it was either series B raise the capital, tons of like, you know, blocking rights on M&A, tons of board seats, like going down that route, which is a, we had a, you know, a fairly large series B like term sheet or it was like, okay, we have a chance to sell the business to a really big strategic And it it could be time to reset. And I felt like in my time as a career, like I felt like at that point, I didn't want to spend the next 10 years in the recruiting marketplace business. And so I felt like I was destined for different, like bigger things. And it was a time for me to kind of reset. It was a great strategic partner. They're like the the world's largest staffing company. They were trying to digitize their entire, like basically experience end to end. And it was... um, I would say overall was the best choice for ourselves, investors and employees. And it was ultimately a really smooth ship. Like they brought the business in, they kept us independent. There was a, there was very, they were very thoughtful about making sure they don't suffocate us as like a, you know, smaller entity inside of a bigger umbrella. And, um, and they ultimately treated everybody really fairly. So I would say, you know, it's very tough. Like generally MA marks a transition state for most entrepreneurs and employees in a lot of ways. And it's, 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 you know, I think at that point it was just a really natural transition for for us. Like, at least for me, like I went from, you know, basically seven years, basically not making any money, putting every dollar I had in the business. I, I had to borrow money in 2015 to pay for rent. Like I was like, you know, dead broke. Where, where do where do
1: you borrow the money from?
0: Yeah, you go you go you go to friends and family and say, hey, I, I need to pay rent. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like people and say, like, you know, I need help. And, you know, in that case, I was like, I was, you know, fortunate enough to have people supporting me and understanding what I was going through. And, um, but it was a really rough time. So you go from there to like 36 months later, you have a $110 million acquisition offer like this, just, you know, it was life changing at that point. And, um, and also like gave me the personal balance sheet to be able to pursue, you know, Archer and figure, which has been, you know, for me, it's been a blessing to be able to
1: have a chance to work on projects like this. So this this is where it gets crazy though. Um, and share whatever you're comfortable with. But like, roughly speaking, how much did you personally make from the Vettery exit?
0: I think roughly about I think it's about a little over twenty million after tax, so like thirty yeah. million or so, like that. So, so
1: so let's take that amount. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is you basically took the vast majority of that money and you put it into Archer. My understanding is the only thing that you used some of your liquidity for was buying a house. It takes a very specific type of brain to be willing to do that when two sentences ago you said how like it was brutal, you weren't making any money with Vettery, you had to borrow money from friends and family to pay for your rent. How did you rationalize at a point in time where you could have easily de-risked yourself, basically risk-awning with your next business?
0: At, at a point when we sold Vettery, I, I really at that point have maybe built like 10 or – 12 companies. Some failed, some worked. And I, I, at that point I felt like I knew how to build a business. I knew how to recruit talent. I knew how to do the engineering work. I knew how to ship products. Like uh, I knew how to fundraise. I knew how to exit. Like basically across the board, I felt, um, yeah, just much more capable. And I last five years, seven years, I was conditioned to eat nothing but like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and like have like no personal burn. So, and I realized kind of post-acquisition, I, I didn't really care about the money. Like, I don't have a fancy car. Like, I don't wear fancy clothes. Like, I just, I don't go on fancy vacations. I love, like, building stuff. Like, I really love, like, you know, I don't play golf on the weekends. Like, come to the office. So I realized that, like, my favorite thing to do in life was to work on really hard problems. And so um, one of the problems that I experienced dead on and with, Hard tech, deep tech is there's Just not a lot of people that fund that. Like there was no, there was no real venture groups like, prior to like Tesla and SpaceX demonstrating like you know fourth rock in orbit and the Tesla Model, you know Model S. There was like there was no venture groups really in there. Uh, and you know same for Rivian early days. Like these these groups are not raising traditional venture capital. There's you know some folks at the big groups that focus on deep tech, but they really focus on like kind of the ancillary businesses. They're not focusing on the businesses that need a ton of cash that have potentially low odds of success that could be really groundbreaking. Those, those generally haven't been funded by traditional venture capital. So when I started Archer, I was just like, I'm, I'm going to control my own destiny here. I'm going to write my own like checks and I'm going to get as far as I can with my own money and prove this, prove this really works. And I, I think I had a lot to prove obviously with the business, but a lot to myself. So I basically almost immediately went back to school at university of Florida and that's basically where Archer started and uh started building aircraft down there try to learn as much as i could i like books on um aerodynamics and fluid mechanics like everything just stacked up in my house like basically went back to work and tried to figure out how to almost like retool myself for this new space that was very difficult there was there's was also no natural people in the world that really understood this we were really at an intersection of electrification, vertical lift, um, like almost like, you know, rotorcraft, like helicopter and then like, you know, airplane. like It's like almost at like this like Venn diagram of talent that really didn't exist in the world. So I had to kind of take that burden on myself to, to learn it, to demonstrate it, to show I could be capable of doing it. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up going all in at Archer. So with Archer, it was just like this area of I needed to understand like basically how powertrain engineering worked. I need to understand the aerodynamics worked. I needed to understand the the physics of like you know vertical lift versus forward flight on a wing and so uh at, at archer it basically came down to a point where you could boil almost everything down to three big levers that the business had or the product had on the aircraft side you basically had um we basically i basically built in like you know electric range equation that amounted to um how much powertrain efficiency like you know how um, high efficiency, the powertrain, etc., can yep. you know uh, t- uh, can deliver ultimately like the lift over drag, like the efficiency of the aircraft, and then ultimately how much mass is made up of energy and how much energy you have on board. Like ultimately, everything boils down to those three levers, and it becomes like relatively simple when you look at the first order of physics of, of that problem.
1: And and I think that speaks to there was a a tweet you put out, I think like last week or the week before. And it, or maybe even in the last few days, but you said, uh, important credo I live by, the rules of the world were all made up by people who are no smarter than you. And it just made me think about how there must have been a lot of assumptions made in whether it's within Archer or even with what you're doing with figure now that were just like self-induced human constraints that aren't actually true. So just like talk for a second about within Archer even, like what are assumptions that the world or even like uh, physicists or people made that you ended up finding was just like completely wrong as you went to build the business?
0: Archer was tough in the early days. I feel like there was this natural knee-jerk reaction people had around batteries not being good enough in cars, so they're certainly not gonna work in aircraft. Yeah. Um, There's this notion that helicopters are like really noisy, they're dangerous, like I don't want that (laughs) anywhere around my neighborhood feel, that electric aircraft have to be just, like basically just the same. So I would say there's like these, there was these preconceived notions that everybody had right away that like this wouldn't work. There was so much like analogies drawn from everybody's experiences, whether with like electric vehicles or in the aerospace or safety or whatever that would look like. That basically like almost like blocked everybody's ability to really see the bigger picture here and like really look at the almost look at the details of like what was really happening. When you when you moved electric, you were basically removing. Thousands of parts that are not necessary in a helicopter. You're changing the dynamics, like the aerodynamic dynamics of the, of the rotors and the blades, that change like the acoustic signature significantly. Um, your your safety like is much better because you have like a lot less parts that are critical that could like basically go down when the aircraft is flying. Um, and then you had like the basic math you could do on power consumption in hover, power consumption in cruise, emergency reserves that were needed for like emergency landing with the FA or YASA, you could basically conclude this was like super possible, but like every time I would pitch this or show the math, like nobody really wanted to hear it. So I think going through that experience and then actually working, right? Like we built the aircraft, like it a bunch. Like, um, I think it worked on like five or six generation aircraft, uh, when I was building Archer, uh, yeah, it's just like, it, it was certainly super possible and it was almost like hidden in plain sight the whole time.
1: So wild. I want to move on to figure now because, you know, it's like as if you couldn't get crazier with kind of the ambition with what, of what you're building. You just seem to one-up the, the level of craziness. Um, I was reading something within either one of your tweet threads or what's on figure's site, which is like, <laughs> you know, it, I feel like it's become such a an absurdity now when you think about... Entrepreneurs pitching VCs and it's always like entrepreneurs will will pitch crazy TAMs when like a VC is like, what's the TAM of your business? They'll be like, $100 billion and like they pull it out of thin air. And then I saw the stat on your website, which is like, well, this is like the largest TAM that exists in the world, which is like the size of the labor market, which is $47 trillion. When you were thinking about this business, going back to like idea generation what was kind of, like? What was the calculus have? How you got to this? Were you like, I just want to solve the biggest problem humanly possible? So let me think about the biggest markets, or was it like, let me just think about the biggest problems that are pay, uh, plaguing society? Like, how did you arrive on Figure?
0: There was definitely a feels feeling like there's a, this is the right time to make it happen, even though it's not probably clear that this is like possibly the right time. This was like a, a huge, enormous industry, and it was a technology that um, once matured could unlock just like this like, a, a, hopefully a really great future. Like there's obviously this like, it could be really bad, like, but we really hope that's not the case. And we're trying as hard as possible to make that not happen. Be being aware of like, you know, areas of robotics and AI, it's like, we gotta be very thoughtful about how we're developing stuff, uh, how we're thinking about safety, all these different aspects. But to extend extent this, this works in a good way, like we think it's just gonna be like one of the most, I think it's gonna be one of the most revolutionary companies ever built. When I was looking at starting this company, the more and more i started looking at more like the details like okay where's uh battery and power density for for robotics what does the ai roadmap look like for perception for semantic behaviors for prediction for planning what does the control stack look like for this um how fast do we need to run the control stack um you know what are the other dependencies of the business across the stack uh, how much capital is going to need what are the first applications uh, how soon can we get to market Uh, how are we going to fund it? Like all this stuff, like basically who the first customers, who the team is a team readily available to, to recruits. All of that work basically was done in a nutshell um, really early to determine like, this is, I think it's actually really tractable problem. And I think there's like also like a, something I maybe need to mention is that this business is incredibly difficult to make a work. (laughs) Like there's not like a, I look at all this and we're like, yep, that check, check, check. It's like, uh, okay, these 50 things all got to go right. And then we maybe can make it. So here we kind of have this like moonshot endeavor that I think is possible in order to make it happen. We have to be highly capitalized. We have to recruit the best talent in the world. We have to work really hard. We have to all be here and be fully dedicated to this mission and making it happen. We need to get the revenue as fast as we can. We need to show the world this can work and work in a really positive way. Uh, We need to have early customers like, around the table that can show that they're willing to pay for this and demonstrate this and use it. I basically determined now that there's a chance here to probably build the world's biggest business. Um, And even beyond that, like make the probably the biggest impact I I could at anything I spend my time on. Uh, So half of all GDP is labor, human labor. So you think like the transportation market's big, like the the market for like human labor is, is, it's the biggest economy in the world. It's, it's, it's massive. We happen to have built this, universal way to interact with the world that like that works with the human body (laughs) it's like the it's the equivalent of like the keyboard and the mouse for the internet which is like the universal general interface to the web or to the like digital world that same equivalent here the physical world is a human body so if you can basically you know you can have legs you can have arms to use tool or hands to use tools and doors and uh, you know, warehouses are built to interact with, like, you know, shelves that were made for human heights and picking out of boxes that were made for humans. You can basically interact with everything in the world. It, it, it's kind of like this holy grail in robotics is, is if it can be done. And there's been – similar to Archer, there's been like decades of work and everybody in the space is exhausted. Mm-hmm. Like nobody – like everybody's failed for 20, 30 years in humanoid robotics and everybody was failing for electric, electrification of aircraft for 20 years. So I'm stepping into this industry that everybody's tired – Everybody like feels like it can't work and we're just trying to rejuvenate it here and say like, this is actually really possible in our, in, uh, here at figure, we're just, we're just, we're just working on these core technologies that demonstrate a product that can, that can be done. And I, I happen to think it's really, really possible. And then, um, yeah, so we're like, we're about a year in now. We're 50 people. And I think I just showed you before we started, but where our full humanoid system came together like last night uh, we it's like li- life for... size,
1: right? Like five foot six,
0: two arms, two legs. Yeah. It's, uh, it's got, yeah, two, two legs, two arms as hands. Um, we, we have a head, but it's not like, we're not trying to mimic the human, the human body. So we don't have like eyes or a, a nose or ears. We have a screen. We have a lot of sensors like cameras and other things in the head. Um, the goal for the, for the form factor and the aesthetics is just to be a tool for humanity. So we want, we want to, we want to deploy these into the labor force to help people, and I think one of the larger deterministic things that I that I realized when starting this business, or reason why I did this, we're having this huge labor crisis in the world that is really not well reported. Uh, so, you know, demographically, the the baby boomers are, re- are retiring, and we haven't had as many kids as poss- as we as we wanted to, probably, and so the, the the amount of people in the labor force is basically flatlining, and will start to shrink worldwide. And this has caused now, what, 11 million jobs in the U.S. that are just unfilled today. Um, so we're walking into clients in retail or manufacturing or warehousing. The questions are not like, how, are you going to replace our people? Like, how are we going to real It's like we have 85% of our employees show up to work today. 85% will show up to work tomorrow. We are seeing 2.5% weekly attrition. We have nobody that wants to walk 10 miles in a warehouse picking 50 items an hour. Uh, and especially in the summers when it's 120 degrees because they have no AC, and in the winters it's 30 degrees because they have no heat. Our goal is to help fill that void. And we want to fill that globally. We think there's an opportunity to, to manufacture millions and ultimately billions of robotics to help with the world. And we think that's going to have like very substantial impact on the economy.
1: We talked about this for Archer, and I'm interested in how you're thinking about it with figure, right? You, decide, you You What you basically said is there are a lot of assumptions that the industry is making that aren't necessarily the right assumptions. And because they're making those assumptions, they don't believe kind of what you're doing or the the ability to get robots to perform human-like tasks to be possible. What are a few like what you would consider like big dangerous assumptions that the industry has made that you believe to be incorrect?
0: Uh, right off the bat. I think one is there's this assumption that I guess it's just a debate on should we build a humanoid that can do a lot of different things, meaning like one product can be put in to do thousands or not, if not millions of applications? Or or should we look at a problem, say like um, a problem in a warehouse, a problem in retail, and just build a special purpose, like our special built robot? And I think most of the world, given how hard humanoids have been development-wise, feels like the world should be all purpose-built robots everywhere. And I think the assumption there is – is pretty flawed. I think it's really hard to build any robotic company, whatever you're doing, robotic vacuum yeah. or humanoid. It's just hard. You need like a lot of people, a lot of capital. You need years. You need uh, to develop a lot of like basically like, conti- a continuum of product iterations that are getting better and better. And then um, and then the problem there is you're building one product for one application. That application will never be done. A product will never be manufactured in high volumes, which is hard for cost. And you're never really going to build an AI data engine on one product. So you, you really want a general you, you really want the generalizability of a product like an interface here in robotics you really want an application or a robot that can do many applications so you can basically build an ai data engine on that robot and then so you can and then uh and afford to do it and then ultimately make that a high volumes for scale so this robot won't be better than like a, a, an X robot here and there that could be built, but it's going to be, it's going to work across thousands, if not millions of applications. It's going to be low cost and it's going to be getting better every day in the workforce. And so I think this, that's, I think that's one that I'm encountering quite a lot. Totally. I think the second, which is kind of linked is that I don't think people think this is possible. Yeah. I think the thing that if we, like we go out, I go out and talk to a lot of people, it's like I think people feel like humanoids will be doable in like the 20-year timeline like oh we'll have humanoids in 2040. But I don't think the general consensus is that we'll have humanoids in the next like 24 months that are actually commercially viable like not doing parkours or backflips and stuff but just like you know doing boring manufacturing or warehousing work. I feel like the public doesn't believe that's actually really possible and I think that's what we really believe here figure that that's possible. And I think the only way to the only, the only path is through here. So we have to go – we just got to go demonstrate it. So we actually have a full warehouse built in our lab here and we want to do full end-to-end human speed performance of the robot by end of year.
1: There's obviously like uh, I would say a good chunk of the population. I even see this kind of like fear within just like the Twitter bubble of – it's the same type of fear in my mind that gets discussed as we're seeing just like the very quick – um, progression of AI and large language models, which is what happens to unskilled labor. So what happens to the people that are currently in Amazon's warehouses that are picking the boxes and are labeling things? Inevitably, you, I would agree that it's more efficient for humanoid robots to do these tasks because also like it gives humans the ability to do higher leverage tasks and <laughs> they're just unmet labor needs needs. But how do you conceptualize to yourself what happens to kind of any low-labor workers in the US if you succeed?
0: Yeah. I think in like the, the near and medium case, we're, we're really not going to be displacing that much labor. I think what we're seeing every day we're walking into a warehouse or manufacturing a retail scenario, they have a tremendous amount of unemployment. The turnover is extremely high. Um, they can't get enough people to want to do this. Um, I think it was a press release or a leaked memo last year of like Amazon just running out of humans to hire yeah. on the planet. <laughs> so like, um, so I think there's certainly a case here that like we will replace some humans in the workforce. Like I don't think that's really a case we we would want to we would want to like just dis- like um, dispute. Yeah. Um, but at least what we're seeing now over the course of the next like five or ten years is I don't think we're going to decide... I- I think we're basically filling a massive – like, basically – like, we have the whole – the whole world is growing in population. We want growth in the economy, and you have a flatline, if not shrinking, labor force. So, like, the only way in my mind to solve that in the next few decades is through automation. Yep. And I think one of the best ways to do that is with humanoid robotics. I think they can scale really well in these application sets, and I think if they can do all the jobs that humans don't want to do. And so we're really, we're really walking in trying to fill that void today – it's the most painful experience that every owner has in every business, every business that we walk into.
1: Totally. I want to get a little bit more tactical for a minute because I think people look at your experience and they're like, damn, like Brett must know how to run an incredibly effective and efficient operation while inspiring the people around him. And so I just have a few questions about literally how you run figure today. The first is, what are you doing to set goals, hold people accountable, keep things on timeline? Do you use a certain management process that you've learned? Is it your own process? Like, how, how does the machine run within your business on a day to day and week to week basis?
0: At Figure, it's a pretty radical culture. I even put out a you know on the Figure website. Um, there's like a culture doc that I wrote when I first started the business. I said like, here's what they expect when you come here. Yep. And I think there's like there's pr- like there's basically two bifurcated cultures out here in Silicon Valley. There's the culture of like, you know, Google, Facebook, Pinterest that like, you know, we're here for you. We'll pay you as much money as possible. Whatever you need, if you need days off to work on other projects, if you need whatever, we're here to basically support you. And I think there's a separate side of things, which is, um, you know, you probably see this at maybe Amazon, Apple, you know, Tesla, SpaceX is we're here for the mission. You're here to get things done and ship product to make an impact on the world. And we really here at Figure really gravitate to that extreme culture where we're like a very mission focused business. So we want people here to help ship product to make a large impact on the world. And so everybody here codes or CADs. Are cats. Our, my directors, like me, like our CTO, everybody here is in the weeds working on the business, helping to build a better product. And so we're not sitting here doing, like, weekly reviews, like, doing, like, quarterly, like, 360s. Like, we're really here to to ship product and get it out the door. Um, My job, I think the most important thing I can do here is to be technically proficient across the field so I can help balance out both the business and the engineering system and then ultimately instill a common vision across the team. So, like, I need everybody to have that same vision I have in my head in their head. The best way to do that is to document it. So I wrote our master plan, which is our 10-year vision. It's on the website. I open-sourced all of it. And um, and then we basically set out for both 10-year le- both and annual goals. So we have a list of 13 goals that we're trying to hit for this year. Some of those are financial goals. So like, okay, we don't want to spend more than this. Yep. Some of those are recruiting goals. Like, we need headcount to support like product development. Some of those are – a lot of those are engineering goals. Like, we need to do this. And demonstrate this in the product. Some of those are commercial goals. We need to sign up, you know, commercial partners or make this progress in commercial side. And then we basically put dates on those and we work towards those. We don't we don't do it in the OKR sense. We do it in like we got to get this done with getting to seventy percent of our product for this year is not a win. We need to get to hundred percent. It needs to be great. We need to produce a great product. So I think we run a pretty tight ship here. I would say it all starts with it all starts with our, basically our mission, vision, values, like defining those, which you'll find on the website. And then it really starts with recruiting. Like, who who are we bringing in? Do they have the same values? Do they have the same common vision that we ultimately want to do here? We we want to incentivize people really well, so we pay at the 80 percent town cash. We give really large stock grants, so people have like really good stock here. In case of like, you know, this becomes a big business, everybody's going to like basically make enough to retire over time. We do we do we do good benefits overall, and then we lay everybody with a with a with a problem that's like never been solved in human history. So it's like. Uh yeah, we got to go do this or we we go bankrupt. And so like that whole team of 50 now have been uh like basically cultivated just for this this goal. So we're like we're trying to go win a championship, which is basically like okay, how do we all come together, play as a team and ultimately ship a great product? And um, I spent a lot of my days thinking about the same question that you asked because ultimately the product quality exists for like the team times their efficiency or the figure of merit. So how do we drive that figure of merit as high as possible to make it basically, or the efficiency as high as possible across the whole team. And that's like almost like a leadership quality, right? Like what what are we doing day to day? Like, does everybody know what to do? How how do they feel about the culture when they come in? Are they excited to be here? Um, Is it easy to like, you know, get up to speed on the 30, 60, 90 days. So we spend a lot of time on that. Um, Two people here that um, we basically have like two people and then, on the whole, uh, everybody here is engineers except for two people. Uh, those two people have been with me at battery. They're my first, like my first hire at battery. <laughs> and then the first hires at Archer and first, very first hires here at figure uh, it's Lee and Logan. They've been with yep. me for 10, 15 years. So they, they're here to help instill that culture, help make sure we document that helps set with goal setting, help with 30, 60, 90 plans, help with hiring. So like all of that, um, you know, comes on the back of like really hard work. And we have two excellent operators here that, that are I would say best in class at this in the world.
1: I love it. Something that I I wish uh, founders or CEOs did, like I wish this existed, is like an open-sourced calendar of of CEOs, calendars in a given day and like what they're doing and how much is strategy, product, ex, uh, meetings, et cetera. Because to me, it, it provides such an incredible, it is the guide on what's actually priority for the founder versus what they talk about. If I don't know if you have your calendar in front of you right now but like if you looked at your calendar today or tomorrow and you had to describe to me like what are you actually spending your time on? Like I'd be super interested in like what are you actually doing today and tomorrow?
0: <laughs> yeah, so we start every day and we end every day with a stand up on the engineering side next to the robot.
1: And so we're
0: we're trying so our our one year anniversary is coming up for the business. We're gonna to try to walk the robot before that, which has never been done. That's basically one like less than a year, uh, getting basically the the whole team together, getting the vision for the company, like getting the funding for it, like building the product to a point where we're demonstrating a full humanoid system doing walking. It'd be the fastest I think I've ever heard of in the world. And so we do a stand-up in the mornings on the engineering side. We have a detailed list of everything we need to do over basically like three big milestones. So it was basically getting upper body set up, brought up, lower body set up, first walking, and then we got some manipulation goals as we progress. And we we end and begin every day with that stand-up, talking about the problems, how to fix them. Do we change strategy? Do we uh, bring up this test stand first or whatever it looks like? And that's a – I'm there. All my leads are there. The whole company's over there. Uh, and we're about to kick that off here in a minute. Um, and then throughout the day, all my meetings are product and engineering related. As I've, as I've gotten like more mature in my career, I've realized more and more like this light at the end of the tunnel for entrepreneurs is like the product. Yep. The product, the product quality will dictate. It's, it's, it's almost like this like parachute. It's like, it's it, it makes it so easy to raise capital when your product's great, to get partners, to scale it, to renew clients. Like, axiomatically, everything sits with the product, like how good that was. And, you know, learned that firsthand, you know, working through my last businesses. So we're here, we're like, okay, if we can get a robot that can be affordable, that can do what kind of humans can do, that semantically can like, have like semantic behaviors to move through the world and, and do things intelligently, autonomously, we can build a huge business on that. We can make a big impact on that. People will be excited to be here. Um, so like everything kind of for us, you know, around the strategy, around partnerships and capital, all sit around this product. So I try to spend all my time sitting on the floor with my employees so they can see me and then being in with those meetings, helping to make decisions, helping with the recruiting or whatever else we need to help support the product development.
1: Um, last question for you is paint a picture and you can tell me if the timeline's wrong of 10 years from now. Uh, I basically want you to call your shot. Like I always think back to the coolest thing is I watch a Mr. Beast video from when he's, uh, it's like five years in the past or 10 years in the past. And he's read, creating a video for his future self saying, I'm going to be at this, at this point in time, 10 years from now, how does the world look different as a function of what figure building and be as specific as possible?
0: I hope within the next you know, 10 years, we can ship at least a million robots into the world. And, um, you know, taking Tesla about 10 years to put a million cars in the road, I think there's an inherent steep learning curve as we get to higher volume of manufacturing. That'll be very difficult for us. I think there's inherent learning ability to put, like, a lot of robots into the workforce and commanding those in real time. That's also really difficult, like a whole fleet that's learning. Um, so, yeah, I think this would be, like, an early chapter for us 10 years from now. And we'd be at a pivotal spot where we can continue to scale out to a much larger business. But I think this is a multi-decade business here that we're starting. And I hope in 10 years we have, yeah, hopefully at least a a million robots out doing work uh, for humans uh, that are helping support the economy. And um, I think that'd be – I think it's going to be pretty magical when you start seeing humanoids around.
1: Totally. And do you think 10 years from now when you have a million humanoids in the world, do you think they're exclusively – uh like commercial exclusively in warehouses and businesses do you think they've yet crept into old age homes the actual consumer household or not yet
0: listen from a technology perspective we're certainly going to try to progress the software stack and autonomy stack as fast as we can it's certainly much different cost of operations going in somebody's home than just a workforce uh i would certainly hope that at the 10-year mark we're starting to do testing in homes with caring for the elderly and other things um, we developing a safety record on the on the more labor side is going to be important for us the whole consumer side is a much different pricing animal it's a much different safety like there's a, just a whole cl- cause like basically um process that we have to go through for that but I, I really hope I really hope in 10 years we're starting to see uh, some consumer angle for the product and we've launched pretty considerably in the b2b kind of more labor market
1: love it well Brett Adcock, thank you so much for joining the crazy ones I'm inspired by the vision that you're, uh, you've are you laid out for figure. And uh, I really hope you pull it off because I think it could be a really amazing outcome. So thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business.